Your attention, please. We're going to get started. We have a lot, we have a very interesting speaker and a lot of things to hear about and questions to be asked. So I'm Mary Shillington, and as of this morning, I'm your moderator. Uh, so uh, welcome he here, and um, can you first turn off your cell phones, please, so that we aren't interrupted by that. Um, we, I have to refer to my, my script here. Thank you to Shaw for being here and for other uh, groups who are doing the PR and uh, the uh, information about uh, us and what comes on. Uh, remember, the, your little dish is there and if you're eating, you need to put $14 in. And if you're not eating, if you're just having tea or coffee, $2. Uh, and you want somebody to to check your money and make sure so that when Annalise comes around, it's accurate. Uh, remember, we are, Christi, Christine is an old timer at SACPA, she's been here before, but so you, and you, most people know that we have 25 or 30 minutes for the speaker and then lunch, uh, this table will go first, and then 30 minutes for the question, uh, question and answer period. And uh, let me think if I need to tell you anything else. Oh, I'll tell you some other things later. Uh, we're apparently having a good lunch, so, which is not unusual. The, uh, Christine and I realized that we have known each other since the early 90s because she was working for the YW and I was doing a practicum there for my social work. And so we've, our paths have continued to cross at various times. But she's gone on to do all kinds of very interesting things, which hopefully you've seen the, the flyer and read about it, read about it. So she's worked with youth, she's worked with all kinds of other groups and been a, the CEO for the YW for a number of years. She's actually worked in this field around family violence for over 30 years. So she's certainly had a variety of experiences and I'm very interested in hearing what she has to say about the Chinook Sexual Assault Center, which just opened in January of this year, and how that uh, joined together all the various groups who have worked in sexual uh, violence over the years. Uh, I worked at Lethbridge Family Services for 15 years, so I know about a lot of that family violence because that was part of my work. And so it's good that there's one central location where people can go and share and work together. So Christine has lots of good information to give us. And uh, of course I should say that it's Christine Casey, in case you don't know her last name. And she, so she has a real sense of humor and a real passion for this work. And so we're in for a good uh, presentation. So here she comes, Christine Casey. <laughs> I should do a disclaimer. Not everyone always shares in my sense of humor, so whether or not it's good, we'll see. Um, and of course, this isn't that happy of a topic, I guess. So good afternoon, and thank you for asking me to share this time with you today. I am Christine Cassie, the CEO for the Chinook Sexual Assault Center. We are Lethbridge's first standalone sexual assault center serving southwestern Alberta. We provide services to all ages and however people identify who've experienced recent or historic sexual assaults. We provide crisis management, general support services, education, peer support groups, 
and we are proud to have subcontracted with Lethbridge Family Services for counselling at the centre for four days per week. All of our services are free and funding for our centre is through community and social services with the Government of Alberta. I did check to make sure that that ministry still exists today. Uh, <laughs> we are currently working on expanding uh, to include a child advocacy centre and we've just entered into phase two of this work. We are a relatively new charitable organization having, having opened our doors to the public just in January of this year. So I'm thrilled to have been contacted by Canood and asked to present this month, uh, this month in May. Uh, May just happens to be Sexual Violence Awareness Month in the province of Alberta. And our center has a few things going on just to help raise awareness of the center and of sexual violence in our community. So just curious, how many of you see sexual violence as an issue in our society? Okay, good, good. So how many of you see sexual violence as an issue that you personally can and should address? Okay, a little fewer. So today I'm here to talk with you about your power to end sexual violence. So look around this room to see the men and the women that are here. Now I want you to imagine because here's the stat for you. One in three women and girls and one in six men and boys in Canada will experience some form of sexual violence in their lifetime. It's really quite staggering when we look at that. I often, when I enter rooms, I wonder, because I'll scan the room to see how many people are there, and I will start to imagine just how many people I'll come in contact with that have actually had these experiences, that have been victimized. Is this enough victims for us to see sexual violence as an issue that's worth standing up against? Are these people that are victimized worth fighting for? It is a question we have to ask ourselves. The past few years, we have to question, I have to just move this, sorry. Can I do this without wrecking anything? Okay. In the past few years, we have to question if we are just complacent observers who want to pretend that the issues of sexual violence don't impact us, or silent contributors to an epidemic. Or are we at loss as to what to do because there is just so much abuse? We have watched as Gian Gameshi is tried and freed. In the United States, we listened to the testimony of Dr. Ford, read the attacks against her, and watched as Brett, as Brett Kavanaugh got confirmed to the Supreme Court. We looked at the presidential election and saw the videotape of Trump talking about grabbing women, calling women liars to large applause, and then being confirmed as president. During all these events, we heard the skepticism, accusations, and outright attacks on the victims, heard the excuses of locker room talk, and he was young. And why would she take so long to report? We have seen survivors vilified and the insufferable support for perpetrators of these crimes where only their futures should be considered as having value. Most recently, just this week, a news report came out from New York that talked about a bus driver who raped a 14-year-old girl but since there was no other victims, he wasn't seen as a threat, as he had no previous record. We all own what has become what we have become as a society. We have supported workplace cultures, family, and social environments to live the rape myths and continue to blame the victim without seeing how we are all impacted by sexual violence. We have heard people ask why someone would stay and work for someone who has sexually harassed them. We never think that work is paying the rent and the food. And that in an uncertain economic time, leaving for another job just may not be an option. It's really not a choice to leave. So just think again, one in three women and girls, one in six men and boys, 
And from these numbers, we know that young Canadians are more likely to experience sexual assault. The rate for sexual assault for Canadians aged 15 to 24 is 18 times higher than that of any other category. 82% of all victims of sexual assault under the age of 18 are female, and, and girls under the age of 18 report a rate of sexual violence almost five times higher than that for boys of the same age. Girls are four times more likely than boys to be sexually abused by a family member. The disabled, both physically and developmentally, experience sexual violence at about three times the rate of non-disabled people, and Indigenous women are three times more likely to experience sexual violence than non-Indigenous. So there's a higher risk of sexual assault noted among those who are women, young, indigenous, single, homosexual or bisexual, and those who had poor mental health or disabilities. In addition, individuals who had certain experiences like childhood abuse or homelessness were at increased risk for sexual assault. And those of us with evening activities outside of the home, like school, work, social activities, also had a higher risk of sexual assault. Although women and children are the primary targets, men also experience sexual violence. So what do we know? Sexual violence impacts all ages, however people identify, women, men, LGBTQ2+, and across ethnic and religious classes. It is safe to say it's not a woman's issue, but belongs to society as a whole. What this also tells us, as stated by Tarana Burke, the founder of the Me Too movement, is that vulnerability has become synonymous with permission and that bodily autonomy is not seen as a basic human right. We fail to recognize that power can often equate to privilege and create an incredible imbalance in our society. Now we know that not all victims of sexual assault report to the police. It's estimated that less than 10% report to authorities. And this is for many reasons, primarily a fear that they will not be believed, a fear of retribution from the perpetrator because often they know who the perpetrator is, and crushing shame or self-blame, just to name a few reasons. So why is this? We have heard or read stories in, the, in news reports. Young woman meets a guy on Tinder, they meet for dinner and drinks, she accepts a ride home and is sexually assaulted. Our first instinct is to question, why meet a stranger? Tinder can't be trusted. Why were you drinking? How drunk were you? Why did you drive with him alone? What were you wearing? We always need to feel confidence that this is a real victim. So let's think about this. Because we see victims as helpless or paralyzed, or if you weren't those things, if you didn't want sex, you would have fought back, there would be injuries, we moved to judgment. Even the victims and perpetrators do this. The victim who self-blames start to believe they were part of the cause of the assault, and the perpetrator will rationalize their crime to excuse and convince self and others that they were charming and irres irresistible or was an innocent misunderstanding. In essence, we have reduced victims to things or objects as one-dimensional beings, we fail to see how they were rational and did all they could just to survive the attack. We fail to provide the same care and understanding of fight and flight responses and how we respond when we're in a state of fear. We fail to understand the impact of trauma on our functioning. Thinking a victim of sexual violence can recall the details of the crime and absence of emotion. We fail to see the manipulation of an offender, the coercion, the threat, and the crime. If we are just to look at sexual violence in Canada, let's start first with defining what sexual violence or sexual assault is. The Criminal Code of Canada views sexual assault as an assault that is sexual in nature. The sexual offenses include sexual assault, sexual assault with a weapon, threats to a third party or causing bodily harm, aggravated sexual assault, and in relation to children, it also includes sexual interference, invitation to sexual touching, and sexual exploitation. 
The Criminal Code of Canada defines sexual assault broadly in order to illustrate what would constitute non-consensual sexual activity. It recognizes that people cannot always speak up and say no. They may be disabled or frozen in some way from speaking up. They may be intimidated or coerced into saying yes when they don't want to. They may be too afraid to say no. According to the Criminal Code of Canada, there is no consent in any of those scenarios. Now that's a pretty simple definition. An assault that is sexual in nature and an absence of consent. And the Criminal Code does go on to define the age of consent and the circumstances of when consent cannot be valid, such as when someone is intoxicated. I must declare to all of you that I am not a lawyer. I know little about the law. If you have questions this regard, I can provide you with some links or some sites that you can go to to do your own research. I must also declare that I'm a little naive. I don't think it takes a scholar or a lawyer to understand, notice I separated lawyers from scholars, I hope that didn't offend, um, to understand when we can touch, when we can have sex, and when someone is too young, when you're, <laughs> when you're in a position of authority, and when it's abuse. I don't really feel that there's blurred lines in this regard. So how do we get to where we are today, where sexual violence is such an enormous issue in our society? Susan Brown Miller, author of Against Our Will, Men, Women, and Rape, stated rape entered the law through the back door as a property crime of man against man and was discussed in hushed tones, frequently villainizing the victim. After all, men had a biological need for sex and it was the woman's responsibility to control or at very least limit male lust. In fact, it was the belief written in law that women were the property of men that has contributed to the culture of rape where one person asserts their power and control over another. It is through this lens that we must see sexual violence as political in nature, not just a crime against one person, but a crime against our society. We have seen this since the dawn of time, where rape is used in war as a military conquest to assert a claim on land and tribes and as a means to extinguish cultures. The use of men, women, and children as prostitutes required to feed the sexual needs of others. The dominance of another in a marriage or relationship with domestic violence. The use of sexual harassment in workplaces as seen recently in the film and entertainment industry. The abuse of privilege to gain access to beauty pageant contestants. The abuse of authority to repeatedly sexually assault Olympic gymnasts or to gain access to children in Boy Scouts or in churches. And the list goes on. Maybe our common definition of sexual violence should be a conscious process of intimidation that is an absolute abuse of power where sexual acts are the weapon of choice. This is not a crime of passion or even about sex. It is a crime of absolute power and control and the abuse of privilege. But we can't look at the issue too simply. There are a number of conditions that increase the likelihood of sexual violence in our world. And according to the World Health Organization, the following factors increase the probability of sexual violence to exist. For individuals, they include alcohol and drug use, coercive sexual fantasies and other attitudes and beliefs supportive of sexual violence, impulsive and antisocial tendencies, preference for impersonal sex, hostility towards women in particularly, history of sexual abuse as a child, witnessed family violence as a child. Relationship factors include associate with sexually aggressive and delinquent peers, family environment that's characteri uh, characterized by physical violence and few resources, a strongly patriarchal relationship in the family environment, emotionally unsupportive family environment, family honor is considered more important than the health and safety of the victim, community factors, poverty, lack of employment opportunities, lack of institutional support from police and judicial system, general tolerance of sexual assault within the community, 
weak community sanctions against perpetrators of sexual violence, societal norms supportive of sexual violence. And societal factors include societal norms supportive of male superiority and sexual entitlement. Weak laws and policies related to sexual violence. Weak laws and policies related to gender equality. High levels of crime and other forms of violence. Now reflect back to my beginning question just a few moments ago. Almost all of us put up our hand to say that we see sexual violence as an issue in our society. So you are correct. It's an issue. It impacts a lot of people and it impacts our full participation in society today. Economically, the annual cost of sexual assault and related offenses for the criminal justice system, social services, and employers adds up to an estimated $200 million, according to the Department of Justice in Canada. When you include the medical costs, lost productivity, and pain and suffering of victims, the cost skyrockets to $4.8 billion per year. So what we know about issues like trauma and the aftermath of victims who have not had support Post-traumatic stress disorder can be debilitating and remove these individuals from leading productive lives. Ending sexual violence makes good economic sense. Having people be able to participate in life in Canada makes good social sense. So what needs to change in order for us to live in a society free from sexual violence? We know it is more than simply saying, teach men not to rape or no means no. We must go deeper to unhinge the grip that rape myths have on us today. A few months ago, I was invited to a neighbor's for a little, I'm glad they're not here, they won't hear me complain about this maybe. Uh, I was invited to a neighbor's uh, for a little women's group. Uh, it, was, it was very nice, uh, where, we're, where they were discussing Me Too movement. I, I arrived a little late because I had another meeting, but was really surprised to hear the conversation, which centered around the fear that they had as men may be falsely accused of sexual assault and sexual harassment. And I actually thought to myself, women are saying this? Like, what the heck? Actually, it was probably more words than that. I really didn't expect that but I should have predicted it. I should have known differently. The Me Too movement showcased the heinous acts that have been perpetrated against scores of people, including men, women, children. We got a visual in those few months of how widespread the issue is, how many people have been hurt, and for many observers, this was like a near drowning experience. How could this be real? For too long, we have seen people as disposable, shaming those that are different from what we thought to be common, calling people liars when their truth was hard to hear, lacking empathy and disregarding their circumstances because of our prejudice, our privilege, and our high moral judgments, all of which have fed the insatiable appetite of rape myths and inequality in our society. If we look at how we were transfixed on the Kavanaugh hearings, when Dr. Blasey Ford and Judge Kavanaugh offered contrasting stories, Dr. Ford's understated testimony served as a stark reminder of gender dynamics and of mental gymnastics required of victims. Judge Kavanaugh's was a blistering defense in which he denounced a partisan frenzy bent on destroying his nomination. The president went on to mock Dr. Ford at a campaign, at a campaign rally to thunderous cheers and separately said it was a very scary time for young men in America because of what he described as an erosion of due process when it comes to sexual misconduct claims. For too long, we have allowed slut-shaming, characterizations on how one identifies sexually, excuse behaviors because he has a career ahead of him, because after all, the victim got herself that drunk, or it happened so long ago, just forget about it. Our society has done an excellent job at encouraging behavior that is dangerous and masking the crime of sexual assault by placing blame on the victim. We tell rape jokes. We talk about rape openly in song lyrics, and yet we buy it the tickets, the CDs, the social media. 
We encourage a culture of rape and pass it off as good fun, as cutting edge entertainment. Just recently, I was appalled to see the production of Sex Dolls. I don't know if any of you saw that on Facebook. These vacant looking plastic dolls that looked like 14 year olds, sold and even rented under the marketing guise of meeting the needs of men and women, thus avoiding rape. Or the rape game video that was created uh, with the sociopath in mind. I didn't know that that was an underserved demographic, by the way. What's wrong with us? What is wrong with us? We have a detrimental theme of victim blaming that exists within the realms. Sorry, I did something. Oh, whatever I did. Doesn't matter. Um, oh, there we go. Uh, we have a detrimental theme of victim blaming that exists within the realms of sexual violence and is unparalleled when compared to any other crimes, criminal situations. Think about it. Someone breaks into your house and steals your big screen TV. Would you be blamed for showing a little too much? After all, the criminal was tempted by your shameless flirting, showing your TV off in the window like that. Going out to visit the neighbor and leaving your door unlocked. What did you think would happen? You invited us. You invited the so-called crime. You're just looking for some attention. And when it didn't go your way, you cried thief. We do this all the time. It's instinctual that we blame the victim. But maybe blaming the victim makes this world a little bit more palatable for us because to accept that such evil exists makes us all vulnerable. We need to address this vulnerability and our complacency. For many of us, we grew up in a time when rape was not talked about, child abuse was denied, uh, girls who found themselves pregnant were shuttled off to a special place never to be seen again. How many of you remember that? That was in my time. How could someone we love, admire, or envy be a criminal? How could I not have known what if someone I know and respect gets accused? We plant the seed to call into question every disclosure and to question the validity of every victim. We pretend that we don't understand consent and make it the role of the victim to explain and prove that they said no. Just a few years ago, a former federal uh, court judge, Robin Camp, asked a woman why she didn't keep her legs together, as if that would have prevented her rape. Worse, as if victims were responsible for the rape, because you were drunk, because you parked where there was poor lighting, because you were at a party, because you trusted someone, because you were dating someone, because you didn't learn self-defense, because you didn't use the self-defense that you learned, because you froze, because you accepted a ride home, because you wore that short dress, because you wished it would stop, does not make you responsible for your victimization. The only one responsible is the person who assaulted you, the only one. We must live consent. It is not just watching a video or having a short discussion. It's a lived experience, something we practice and model throughout our lives. It doesn't happen in the calm curriculum in, in high school or at a public lecture. It happens in our relationships. Consent isn't just about saying no. It's also about saying yes and with enthusiasm, finding and knowing joy in what we do. It's about teaching that we have autonomy over our bodies, that we can love and yes, you can enjoy sex on your terms and terms that are shared with a consenting and hopefully a loving partner. We do this by modeling consent. Can I have a hug? Want mommy to kiss your boo-boo better? Yes, I would love to go to that movie. Your brother said stop bugging him. Please leave him alone and give him his space. Now in saying this, it also is in our families that we are exposed to some of the most terrible ideas about consent and agency. These lessons start early are reinforced often. And we're not talking about abusive families that are built on coercive foundations, but our families. How many of you were forced to hug an aunt or an uncle that you really didn't know or like? Yeah, why did we do that? It's a simple example, but the mandatory hug in many instances 
Aunt Mabel was a complete stranger to that child and may have been frightening in stature, even in, in appearance. Our teachings on consent must be changed from the days of yore with obligatory hugs and kisses, with obligatory hugs and kisses. Boundaries are a good thing to teach. Trust is earned and not inherent due to familial status. We need to think more of the implications of what we, can, of what we do. Children see how we interact with parents, as parents, as teachers, as ministers, as neighbors, how we maneuver relationships, how we demonstrate respect. It is on us to shape the society in which we live by how we talk, touch, respond, establish boundaries, speak with colleagues, communicate on social media, and even react during provincial elections. We are becoming more individually focused and less with less human connections. We need to ensure that we are focused on empathy and building a culture of respect. I say this knowing of recent reports that, uh, I think World Health Organization released a report that babies up to the age of two should not get screen time. I actually was aghast that this was a revelation. Um, seriously, people need to be told that little ones shouldn't be in front of the TVs or have tablets? Um, I it was a wow moment for me. Of course nothing replaces the power and the value of human to human connections at any age, but especially for the young. How else do we learn how to respond? What our feelings mean when touch is good or bad? Empathy is a core skill required to reduce and eliminate sexual violence. Empathy is a skill which enables understanding of another person's experience and appropriate responses and behaviors. The key point is that either as a general mechanism or, if it's speci or, or specifically contextualized, empathic concern towards another person encourages pro-social altruistic behaviors. In this context, empathy requires a capacity and willingness to imagine the other person's perceptions, needs, and right to their body. How we interact, how we respond, the questions we ask, all can lead to learning empathy. Face-to-face -face interactions, teaching emotional responses, labeling emotions, help children and adults to identify with others and think beyond their own personal needs, thus increasing helpful and kind responses. When we see beyond ourselves and our individual needs and desires, we can relate to what is better for others. Our role is to help educate on the reality of sexual violence, and education is a key element in ending sexual violence. A culture of silence surrounds sexual violence, and many people have been too afraid and ashamed to talk about it, and this silence is then interpreted as sexual assault is rare. This myth, I'll speak faster. This myth of rare occurrence feeds into the myth that sexual assaults are only perpetrated by strangers, and yet today we know that sexual assault offenders are more often known to the victims. They've been friends, neighbors, family members, dates, work colleagues, or acquaintances. We've been told that women cry rape and make false accusations, yet the reality is the rates of false accusations are no higher for sexual violence than they are for other crimes. They range between 2 and 6%. We expect victims to remember details when, they've been, uh, when they have experienced significant personal trauma. Sexual assault victims commonly struggle with a range of emotions that make it difficult for them to report or disclose abuse. Often victims who do report will delay doing so for a variety of reasons that we've already talked about. I'll just move on that way. Um, right. So let's remember, determining if sexual assault is real is tangled up in our decades of rape culture where we are set on blaming victims. It has only been the past few years that has seen the advancement of trauma-informed trauma care and the scrutiny on how we investigate these crimes. Many police have not had the advantage of being trained to investigate sexual assaults. Rather, we have them focus heavily on how to interrogate criminals. 
To this end, policing agencies across Canada are under scrutiny and have been opening their files for independent reviews in order to improve investigative work, move reported sexual assaults from unfounded to founded, and increase criminal prosecution of offenders in the court system. We must engage bystanders, and engage bystanders someone who intervenes before, during, or after a situation that they see or hear uh, that may promote sexual violence. It's common for people to witness situations where someone makes an inappropriate sexual comment or innuendo or tells a rape joke or touches someone in a sexual ma ma manner. Bystanders also witness other forms of sexual violence. They can intervene in a way that helps create a safer environment. And research has shown that these programs can produce positive results by increasing participants' knowledge of sexual violence and decreasing the acceptance of rape myths and increasing the likelihood that they're going to engage. Uh, I was at a get-together once with some of my neighbours and someone told a rape joke and it included uh, something about an Indigenous woman. The whole room went quiet, so I had to say something. I said, obviously, that joke just isn't funny. It's wrong to do. Oh, Christine, it was just a joke. It wasn't a joke. It's not funny. It's not acceptable. Everyone stayed quiet and I said, well, time for another drink, okay. And we moved on. He's never told a joke like that in front of me before. The message wasn't just for him. It was also for everyone else in that room. It's okay to say something. This, this is the wrong thing. How many of us, uh, I don't know how many of you watched the Rock, Rocky Horror Picture Show. It was a movie that I absolutely loved. I saw it when I was 16 in San Francisco. Um, I honestly never listened to the lyrics. I never paid attention to it until I was an adult and went to the play when it was here. And I was appalled that I actually had supported rape myths because that's what the whole thing is about, it seems. But it's like junk food. You can't just have one chip, you eat the whole bag. But our conversations around rape myths, our conversations of what we see in social media, what television show we're watching, what movie we've watched, uh, the article that you've just read, are very important conversations to have with family and friends and colleagues. Finally, we need to believe victims. It takes a great deal of trust, blind trust by a victim to give, give you their story. See this as an honor, as it has been an incredible gift given with great vulnerability, where the victim is reaching out and bearing their soul. All you have to do is listen and say, I believe you. You have been so strong. What do you need? They are doing the hardest work by reliving their assault. They are trusting you to accept them and believe them. Disclosures don't just happen in our office, but in those fleeting moments. At bus stops, at the end of class, driving in a car, following a church service, or at a lunch date. Stop, listen, and support. Let the survivor lead. This is critical. It's part of their process to regain their autonomy and reclaim a life that has been taken away through violence. Finally, we need to acknowledge our roles in perpetrating rape myth through victim blaming and silencing those that have lived through the horrors of sexual assault. Take time to learn about rape myths. Hold discussions with loved ones. Use teaching moments to reflect on how we may have inadvertently contributed to this in our society. Oh, see, there's my story. Uh, <clears throat> By taking into account the roles in educating ourselves and others on sexual violence, teaching empathy and respect, being engaged bystanders, ending rape myth and in believing victims, it is then that we can reconcile and recognize our own individual power and live the vision of ending sexual violence. We owe this to ourselves and to our future generations. I truly believe we have a responsibility, that each of us have that responsibility to end sexual violence, and that each of you have the power to end sexual violence. Let's make that our reality. Thank you.